EU Futures Podcast, a project of the Center for the Study of Europe at Boston University. Welcome to the EU Futures Podcast, exploring the emerging future in Europe. I'm Olya Jordanian, an outreach coordinator at BU Center for the Study of Europe. Today is December 7th, and I talked to Dr. Peter Vorovshek, a lecturer of social studies at Harvard University. Dr. Vorovshek will be a lecturer of politics and international relations at the University of Sheffield, England, starting from January the 1st, 2017. Uh, so my name is Peter Voroshek. I'm currently a lecturer on social studies here at Harvard University. And uh, as of January 1st, I will be lecturer in politics and international relations at the University of Sheffield in England. What's the future emerging now in Europe? Um, <laughs> that's a very big question. Um, I certainly think in terms of, if we think of Europe, um, in terms of the European institutions, um, We're seeing a lot of uncertainty. Um, I think there's been a lot of talk over the last decade, 15 years, um, about a multi-speed Europe. To a certain extent, that has already or has always been a reality, um, given sort of the differences in terms of some countries being in Schengen, others not, uh, some countries being in the Euro, others not. But I think we are likely to really see the institutional emergence um, of a multi-speed Europe, um, especially with Brexit coming up. Um, while I think that's a big hit for Europe, it's also is an opportunity for some institutional deepening by some core members. Um, I think we probably, given the Euro crisis, will start to see um, an institutional separation um, between members of the Eurozone, perhaps even a Eurozone parliament or Um, a Eurozone group within the parliament that will meet to discuss monetary issues or issues relating to the Eurozone separate from the member states who do not use the Euro. Um, of course, a lot of that is up in the air depending on sort of the elections coming up in the next year and all the turbulence with populism. Uh, so a lot of that's up in the air, but if, um, if populists do not win out in the upcoming French and German elections, Um, I think we will start to see a deepening driven by by at least those two core member states. Um, if we look beyond the European institutions, um, I think we will see security and military issues becoming more important in Europe. Um, so ironically, as the European institutions have been put under greater pressure um, in a political and economic sense, there's also been greater military pressure um, As a res largely as a result of uh, the ongoing conflict in Ukraine, um, and especially then some of the abductions um, of citizens across lines in the Baltic states, um, and then especially with uh, Donald Trump, our, the new U.S. president-elect, questioning NATO, I think European institutions will, I think Europe as a whole will feel more pressure to uh, take care of common defense, and uh, Donald Trump's call for European nations to spend more money on their militaries, I think, will be heated, and it might have been heated even without that, um, given sort of the growing sense of threat from the East. So I think that sort of on a general level, we are seeing political and economic st instability within the Eurozone and, that, and within the EU, and then in Europe as a continent, we're seeing sort of a greater importance on military factors. So I have two follow-up questions. One about the institutional arrangements. How, how do you see the, the internal dynamic within within the European Union going to develop, uh, uh, given 
any possible separation of Euro mem- Eurozone members having a separate coalition or separate institutional arrangement? How do you think that internal dynamic and integration between these two group of member states gonna gonna work or develop? And my second follow-up question is about security and common security and defense. How how do you see it um, in an let's think about the ideal world, how how it should look like in Europe if we would have a more ideal circumstances? Um, so as to the first question, um, I mean, I think we, we have seen a large um, de facto deepening of the Eurozone um, since the onset of the crisis um, in February, March of 2010, um, with sort of the beginnings of sort of a banking union, um, sort of greater currency oversight, uh, greater fiscal oversight. Um, and I think sort of those issues will eventually, I mean, those issues have all been pushed to this point by the council. I think eventually we will have to have some sort of um, parliamentary involvement in that. Um, and I think sort of that will lead to some separation. Uh, currently, all the member states that have joined the EU since 2004 are officially obliged to adopt the euro. Um, I think we will see the polls coming in fairly soon, and I think that will be a, an opportunity and for the eurozone to deepen with one of the sort of new big member states coming in. Um, so I think we will start to see that. I think in terms of the actual dynamics between sort of the member states of the core that have the euro and the member states of the periphery that don't. Um, I I don't think that will affect their relations too much. I think even if we do get more parliamentary involvement um, in fiscal issues um, and in issues relating to the problems of the euro, we probably will not see the parliament becoming much stronger vis-a-vis the council. I think sort of the demise of the community method in favor of a sort of intergovernmentalism is probably here to stay for the near future. Um, And as a result, I don't imagine that we will see sort of huge separations or bifurcations between sort of the core and the periphery. Um, I think to the extent that that will become a problem, it will probably in the area um, that is the the topic of the second of your second follow-up question um i mean i think sort of what we have witnessed if we looked in sort of the 1990s under javier solana we did see the real outlines of a common sort of foreign security and defense policy being outlined in europe um in recent years that seems to have fallen apart more or less completely um federica mogherini does not seem to have been very successful in sort of her attempts to uh revive that push, um, especially as Europe has started to look inward. Um, I think insofar as there's any hope um, for a common security and defense policy to be revived, it will probably be revived on the issue of migration. Um, As I said, I think in terms of sort of the security threat that's emanating from, from Russia and from a lot of these small conflicts that have sort of been blowing up over the last couple of years, I think Europe will continue to of necessity rely on NATO. Um, I think there's, I, I don't think that NATO will be harmed by the incoming Trump administration. I think there's too much support within the US military for that. And he seems to have brought on a lot of generals who really do believe in NATO. Um, 
But I do think that sort of insofar as the security defense policy of the European Union becomes necessary, it will hope it will be part of the solution to the migrant crisis. Um, and insofar as it fails, it will be part of sort of Europe's failure to address that issue. Um, and clearly that is one of the one of the core issues in alongside sort of the economic troubles that is driving the rise of populism. So it's clearly is in Europe's interest to get on the same page and to sort of um, increase the amount of support that member states that do not have borders outside of Europe give to member states that are on the front lines of the migrant crisis. So particularly Greece and Italy um, come to mind as being sort of the core member states that would benefit from a more unified approach towards uh, Europe's external borders. I see. Um, moving on to democracy issues, um, there has been a lot of critiques towards European institutions and a lot of discussion about democratic deficits. Mm -hmm. How do you see the future of democracy within the EU? I mean, what are the paths for development? Um, <laughs> I mean, unfortunately, I think um, the paths for the development of a more democratic Europe um, have become much more difficult as a result of the new renewed nationalism um, that we are seeing. And there is now a big push to sort of renationalize competencies that were given over to Europe. Um, so, I mean, the potential breakup of the Eurozone, the potential for member states to leave the Eurozone or even leave um, the EU as a whole, um, I think has sort of threatened any further progress um, in terms of sort of moving politics, moving the core issues of politics up from the nation state towards the supranational level. Um, I think the recent problems have also demonstrated that um, that's just sociologically speaking, there is very little desire to do that um, on the part of populations, even though in our new global age, it may become more necessary. Um, I think, unfortunately, as I mentioned before, the, the more intergovernmental approach is probably here to stay. Um, and I'm not sure that's necessarily a problem in terms of European democracy. Of course, we would want to see greater involvement of sort of um, the European Parliament in the political issues that are that are sort of overseen by the EU, especially as the EU starts to take over areas that have traditionally been within the competencies of member states, so fiscal, monetary, welfare policy, right, all these kind of things. Um, however, I think those issues can legitimately be dealt with on a more intergovernmental level, provided that we, that sort of, that European, that those issues and how national governments will deal with those issues in Europe becomes an actual part of um, the, pub the discussions within the, the public spheres of the member states, and also that it becomes a source of disagreement at the level of party platforms with at, in elections on, at the level of the member state member states. So um, I think a lot of the populism we have seen has been the result of the fact that in a lot of countries, um, all or most of the established parties, and certainly the major center right and center left parties, um, have not really campaigned on Europe, um, have not sort of exhibited many differences um, in terms of their relationships towards Europe. Um, and I think that's especially been visible in Germany um, with the rise of the Grand Coalition, where 
it has been very hard to discern any real differences in terms of European policy between the SPD and the CDU, CSU, um, especially sort of in economic areas. Um, and as a result of that, right, I mean, when all of the mainstream parties seem to share a view or where the differences between those parties are not visible, um, then people start to look for alternatives outside of the mainstream, right? So in that sense, I think a lot of Germans who were on both right and left who were disappointed by the way the euro crisis has been handled, they almost felt alternativlos, right? Like there was no alternative. And in that sense, I think the the branding of Alternativa für Deutschland has been really brilliant just in terms of their party name, where they build themselves as offering a real alternative to a lot of voters who felt like they did not have one. Um, so I think in that sense, um, we will not see much greater institutional democratization. Um, but the way we that could be made up for is to see sort of greater democratization and greater um, involvement of European issues within the domestic sphere and within domestic re elections and hopefully seeing sort of center-right and center-left parties really beginning to speak about what they want to see happening at the European level. So one hopefully would, we'll see, we, we would see center-left parties speaking um, in the new French and German elections, speaking about how they would seek to push European social policy further, right? Push um, traditional leftist issues further. And then see the right separate themselves from that by sort of talking more about market strategies, um, perhaps more about cultural issues at the European level, and really making those a part of electoral campaigns. And I think that's sort of one way where at a sociological level we can make up for some of the institutional deficits we are seeing in Europe. Can you elaborate a little bit more about Euro European Union's social policy? I think that's something that is not discussed that much. It's kind mm. of um, other issues are covered more than social policy. I mean, I think and that's normal, right? I mean, to, to date, the European Union has been largely a regulatory body. Um, most of, I mean, the most powerful sectors of the commission, right, are the ones that deal with uh, trade and competitiveness, um, so in that sense, those, those issues are not really social policy issues. I think um, as a result of the problems we have seen in the euro crisis and as a result of the fact that we have not seen um, economic convergence or the economic convergence that many people expected as a, to come out of the euro, um, we will need to see social policy moving up um, on the European agenda, if only to sort of prevent the kind of separations we've seen where an economy like Germany's can be doing very well while an economy like Greece's experiences a depression worse than the Great Depression. So I think in some sense we will have to see social policy as a form of perhaps um, obvious or somewhat or maybe somewhat hidden cross-border fiscal transfers. Um, now I think sort of one area where we are seeing that where we're seeing at least the outlines start to develop um, is the idea of um, having so have, having the development of um, the protection of bank accounts, right, at a European level, something like the FDIC in the United States, right, sort of where the European Union would protect 
sort of savings kept in European banks at under 100,000 euros or something like that. And although that is a banking sort of monetary issue, it's also an issue of social policy, right? Because it ensures that even if um, a situation like Greece happens again, that regular people will be able to count on their savings um, being saved, right? And not being used merely to uh, sort of bail out big banks. Um, so things like that, I think, could eventually push towards something like um, some sort of minimal standardized European unemployment insurance. Um, I mean, there have been some serious proposals put out for that already. Um, I think that has been on the agenda. Um, unfortunately, I think a lot of these, a lot of these proposals will be difficult to put into place, um, given sort of the economic situation. However, if the economy does improve, if we do start to see some growth in Europe, I think that then becomes possible. Um, and that can then be a hedge against sort of the next recession. Now, the question is, will we see enough growth in Europe for these things to become um, politically possible? Um, and sort of will or will the next recession come too quickly? Right. Um, and that's the major problem. But as I said, I think sort of European social policy is something that also, if that rises on the European agenda, that's something that could also push European issues onto the agenda of domestic politics, um, which I think is the real step that is currently missing. Um, so, uh, so I think that, that there are good reasons to sort of try to move that into the forefront a little bit more, both from a very pragmatic sort of economic point of view, but also from a more political standpoint, I think that becomes necessary as part of the solution to some of the democratic deficits we have seen. You talked a little bit about the rise of populism across Europe, and uh, it seems to be a continuous trend not to stop sometime, anytime soon. And um, do you think the European Union as a supranational, supranational um, organization can do anything to kind of mitigate the negative consequences or threats this rise of populism can bring? I mean, I think it's very, it's very hard for the European Union to do much about this, largely because the European Union is one of the major drivers of this populism. Um, sort of, we've seen a lot of recent research um, trying to sort of get at the underlying reasons and mechanisms and drivers of populism. And it really seems like this is more than just an economic response. Um, so Robert Inglehart and Pippa Norris have been doing some very interesting work, um, as of people like Yasha Munk, um, that really shows that in large part, it seems like this backlash is a cultural backlash. Um, against the kind of quasi-silent quasi revolution of sort of cosmopolitan values of toleration that have been pushed by the European Union and by, by elites within the member states. Um, and I think we could see that both in sort of um, in polling Eurobarometer data, but also if we look at elections data, where the rise of these populist parties and sort of voting percentages can could be seen as to be, to be directly proportional to voter age, right? So older voters have been supporting, supported Brexit to a much higher degree um, than younger voters. 
Um, that has been sort of true across across states. Um, and so in some senses, this really is a backlash of sort of older, um, more rural voters who have basically seen their countries drastically change on a cultural level um, over the course of their lifetimes and who in some sense no longer feel at home um, in their homes, um, where they almost feel like they are living in a foreign country. Um, and in large part, the European Union has been blamed for that. Um, I certainly think sort of the European Union in terms of freedom of movement um, and in terms of sort of programs like Erasmus that allow students and foreigners who look different, who speak different languages to come in, um, has certainly contributed. But it's that revolution probably would have happened regardless, simply for economic reasons. Um, but I think sort of the European Union and sort of voting for anti-EU parties, for sort of populist parties, and pushing the and pushing to sort of leave the the EU has is the easiest target for voters who are not satisfied or who sort of do want to reject the changes that they've seen and these changes that they largely feel they were never consulted on. Um, so I think it's going to be rather difficult for the EU to really combat combat this in any in any sort of meaningful way. Um, again, I think sort of. The one one way to do this would be to stop pushing um, trade deals so much. Um, I mean, that's one sort of way of maybe making the EU seem like it can be part of the solution. Um, so I think certain steps like that, maybe greater protections for workers pushed at the European level to go back to an issue we were discussing earlier, um, might be a way of making the EU seem like it's part of the problem, part of the solution, not merely part of the problem. Um, but again, I think the narrative of Europe as pushing these reforms, um, the narrative of, of Europe as, um, as sort of being the scapegoat for difficult decisions made at the domestic level has been well established. Um, I think for the last 20 to 30 years, we've seen domestic politicians attend summits, reach agreements, go home and be sort of confronted by the unpopularity of those agreements and then saying, oh, you know, Brussels made me do it uh, when they full well represented positions and pushed for certain things to be done. So I think, unfortunately, a lot of those narratives are already deeply entrenched and it's not clear that that we're necessarily that the EU is going to be able to push back in any meaningful way. I think the big question, given the general generational dynamics we're witnessing, is whether the EU will survive long enough for, on the one level, these um, sort of voters who feel the cultural backlash the most to sort of pass away, um, and then whether it will last long enough for the younger generation that has had the opportunity to travel, that has had the opportunity to study, um, the younger generation that is sort of intermarrying across national lines to an unprecedented degree, whether the EU will survive long enough for that generation to sort of take the reins of power or to sort of start to exert um, greater influence, and whether that generation of millennials um, will realize that being politically more active is something that is necessary. So I think one potential response to the rise of popularism is we might see... Um, a greater political mobilization among young people who all of a sudden realize that the things they take for granted um, cannot be taken for granted any longer. 
Um, so I think that is one area of hope. The danger is that given the high levels of unemployment among the youth all around Europe, but especially in the South and in the periphery, is that this generation that sort of should be the most European will actually turn its back on Europe as a result of lost economic opportunities. And I think that merely serves to understate or to sort of underline the importance of making some economic progress and sort of pushing um, at least some of the consolidation um, that is necessary to allow for richer member states to support those poorer member states and to ensure that the youth do not um, do not lose their faith um, in the potential of the of the European project. What the future should look like in Europe? Oh, I mean, <laughs> these open-ended questions are very difficult. Um, I mean, I think it's very hard to to see much beyond a couple of years in the future, given the amount of uncertainty right now. Um, I mean, I think in some ways your question, your question is basically the third Kantian question, right? The question of what may I hope for? Um, and if I sort of think about what I would hope for is I do hope that, that, um, that, the core members and that the EU treat Brexit as an opportunity. Um, it's often said that crises are wonderful opportunities, you just have to seize them. And hopefully, um, after the French and German elections, um, we will have leaders in place who will be able to take advantage of those opportunities um, to push some greater deepening, to push towards um, have a Europe that has a common treasury, towards a Europe um, that has a banking union, sort of towards sort of these, these parts of the, of the economic system that sort of almost necessarily, almost logically go hand in hand with having a common currency. Um, so I think that is certainly in the short term what about all that we can hope for is that we will sort of see the continuation of this de facto move towards a common European treasury. Um, and then after that, I think a lot of I think that would do quite a bit to helping Europe to sort of develop further. So I think sort of having the development of something like a Euro Parliament um, is something that we could hope for. Um, the greater entrance of political issues into the EU, I think, is uh, into sort of politics at the level of the member states, I think is something that we can reasonably hope for as people realize the importance of the EU in an age of globalization. Um, but at this point, I think that's about all that we can hope for. And I mean, and I think certainly one of the greatest hopes we all have to have, um, as sort of humanitarians is that is for the end of the war in Syria. Um, much as, um, a lot of us do not like, uh, Bashar al-Assad, um, it does seem like, um, his forces combined with, um, with Russian assistance have managed to, overcome both ISIS and a lot of the moderate rebels. It does seem like he will be successful in consolidating control of Syria again. And hopefully he will not be vindictive in the aftermath of that consolidation. Um, that will then, again, hopefully allow for people who had to flee the war to return home, as most of them seem to want to do, right? Those people did not want to become refugees. Um, 
and that would relieve some of the pressure on the Europe, on Europe's external borders and would maybe allow member states like Germany to take a breath as they seek to integrate the many migrants they have already accepted without sort of having this uh, threat of even more coming in, destabilizing politics at home. So I think certainly if we do, if we do see some progress in the international realm in these civil wars that have been driving migration, that will also allow Europe to focus once again on these sort of, I mean, I, I want to say domestic, but <laughs> on these sort of European, on these internal European issues that it needs to resolve. And hopefully in resolving those issues, that will then make agreement on, on certain external postures more possible. Um, those are all very short-term hopes, um, but I'm not sure that at this point it's reasonable to look much beyond that. Thank you so much. Is there anything I didn't ask you about, but you want to talk about? I mean, I, as I said, I am, I am part of the young generation that has had the opportunity to, to move around Europe to take advantage of my European citizenship. Um, I've had the opportunity to vote in three different countries in Europe, right, in local elections as a European citizen. Um, I still have open bank accounts in two different European countries. Um, so, and I sort of see the attitudes of many people in my cohort, many of my friends. Um, and I think that sort of more and more as the old generation, sort of the founding generation of the EU has died out, right? That generation that could remember the wars and was motivated by that. Um, I think that we, I'm, I'm very hopeful that if we can make it through this crisis, that sort of this new younger generation that has, that does not obviously remember the war, but that is European as a result of it, their experiences as a result of our experiences um, will be able to push the project forward um, towards greater integration and we'll be able to build on those experiences and to ensure that our children will be able to have them as well. Um, and I think that is perhaps my greatest hope and also my greatest fear is that they will be denied those opportunities that I and sort of my generational cohort has had. You've been listening to the EU Futures Podcast project of the Center for the Study of Europe at Boston University, funded by a Getting to Know Europe grant from the European Commission delegation in Washington, D.C.